Chapter 3 Leading Your Team Into Conflict General Tactics Exploiting Prevailing Weather The tactical use of weather as a force multiplier has influenced many important battles throughout history, such as the Battle of Waterloo. Fire Attacks Reconnaissance by fire is used by apprehensive soldiers when they suspect the enemy is nearby. Force Concentration the practice of concentrating a military force against a portion of an enemy force. Night combat, combat that takes place at night. It often requires more preparation than combat during daylight and can provide significant tactical advantages and disadvantages to both the attacker and defender. Reconnaissance, a mission to obtain information by visual observation or other detection methods, about the activities and resources of the enemy or potential enemy, or about the meteorologic, hydrographic, or geographic characteristics of a particular area. Smoke screening, the practice of creating clouds of smoke positioned to provide concealment, allowing military forces to advance or retreat across open terrain without coming under direct fire from the enemy. 8. Classical maneuvers of warfare. Penetration of the center. This involves the creation of a gap in the enemy line and its exploitation. Two ways of accomplishing this are separating enemy forces and using a reserve to exploit the gap that forms between them. For example Battle of Cheronia, 338 BC, the first recorded use of the penetration of the center, or having fast, elite forces smash at a specific point in the enemy line, an enemy weak spot or an area where your elites are at their best in striking power, and, while reserves and holding forces hold your opponent, drive quickly and immediately for the enemy's command or base, that is, Blitzkrieg. Attack from a defensive position, establishing a strong defensive position from which to defend and attack your opponent. However, the defensive can become too passive and result in ultimate defeat, for example, Siege of Alesia and the Battle of the Granicus. Single envelopment, a strong flank beating its opponent opposite and, with the aid of holding attacks, attack an opponent in the rear. Sometimes, the establishment of a strong, hidden force behind a weak flank will prevent your opponent from carrying out their own single envelopment, for example, Battle of Rockro. Double envelopment, both flanks defeat their opponent opposite and launch a rear attack on the enemy center. Its most famous use was Hannibal's tactical masterpiece, the Battle of Canyon was frequently used by the Wehrmacht on the eastern front of World War II. Attack in oblique order, this involves placing your flanks in a slanted fashion, refusing one's flank, or giving a vast part of your force to a single flank, for example, Battle of Leuthen. The latter can be disastrous, however, due to the imbalance of force. Feigned Retreat Having a frontal force fake a retreat, drawing the opponent in pursuit and then launching an assault with strong force held in reserve, such as the Battle of Milling, and the Battle of Hastings. However, a feigned retreat may devolve into a real one, such as in the Battle of Grunwald. Indirect Approach 
having a minority of your force demonstrate in front of your opponent while the majority of your force advance from a hidden area and attack the enemy in the rear or flank, for example, Battle of Chancellorsville. Crossing the T, a classic naval maneuver which maximizes one side's offensive firepower while minimizing that of the opposing force. Deception, Sun Tzu said that all war is based on deception back in the 4th century BC, a wise commander takes measures to let his opponent only react to the wrong circumstances. Diversionary attacks, feints, decoys, there are thousands of tricks that have been successfully used, and still have a role in the future. Perfidy, combatants tend to have assumptions and ideas of rules and fair practices in combat, but the ones who raise surrender flags to lead their attackers in the open, or who act as stretcher bearers to deceive their targets, tend to be especially disliked. False flag, an ancient ruse de guerre, in the days of sail. It was permissible for a warship to fly the flag of an enemy power, so long as it properly hoisted its true colors before attacking. Wearing enemy uniforms and using enemy equipment to infiltrate or achieve surprise is also permissible though they can be punished as spies if caught behind enemy lines. Part 2, Things to keep in mind when in battle. A leader leads by example, not by force. You have to believe in yourself. Appear weak when you are strong, and strong when you are weak. If your enemy is secure at all points, be prepared for him. If he is in superior strength, evade him. If your opponent is temperamental, seek to irritate him. Pretend to be weak, that he may grow arrogant. If he is taking his ease, give him no rest. If his forces are united, separate them. If sovereign and subject are in accord, put division between them. Attack him where he is unprepared, appear where you are not expected. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Supreme excellence consists of breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. If the mind is willing, the flesh could go on and on without many things. Victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. To know your enemy, you must become your enemy. Keep your friends close, and your enemies closer. Can you imagine what I would do if I could do all I can? Even the finest sword plunged into salt water will eventually rust. Engage people with what they expect. It is what they are able to discern and confirms their projections. It settles them into predictable patterns of response, occupying their minds while you wait for the extraordinary moment, that which they cannot anticipate. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Thus we may know that there are five essentials for victory. 1. He will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. 2. He will win who knows how to handle both superior and inferior forces. 
3 he will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout all its ranks. 4 he will win who, prepared himself, waits to take the enemy unprepared. 5 he will win who has military capacity and is not interfered with by the sovereign. The extremely subtle, even to the point of formlessness. The extremely mysterious, even to the point of soundlessness. Thereby you can be the director of the opponent's fate. Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. There are not more than five musical notes. Yet the combinations of these five give rise to more melodies than can ever be heard. There are not more than five primary colors, yet in combination they produce more hues than can ever be seen. There are not more than five cardinal tastes, yet combinations of them yield more flavors than can ever be tasted. Opportunities multiply as they are seized. When the enemy is relaxed, make them toil. When full, starve them. When settled, make them move. Know yourself and you will win all battles. Move swift as the wind and closely formed as the wood. Attack like the fire and be still as the mountain. Let your plans be dark and impenetrable as night, and when you move, fall like a thunderbolt. When strong, avoid them. If of high morale, depress them seem humble to fill them with conceit. If at ease, exhaust them. If united, separate them. Attack their weaknesses. Emerge to their surprise. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. There is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged warfare. The greatest victory is that which requires no battle. Treat your men as you would your own beloved sons. And they will follow you into the deepest valley. Build your opponent a golden bridge to retreat across. All warfare is based on deception. When you surround an army, leave an outlet free. Do not press a desperate foe too hard. Conquered free states, with their own laws and orders. Ruin them, as Rome destroyed Carthage, and also as Machiavelli says the Romans eventually had to do in Greece, even though they had wanted to avoid it. Go to live the, or install colonies, if you are a prince of a republic. Let them keep their own orders but install a puppet regime. Princes who rise to power through their own skill and resources, their virtue, rather than luck tend to have a hard time rising to the top, but once they reach the top they are very secure in their position. This is because they effectively crush their opponents and earn great respect from everyone else. Because they are strong and more self-sufficient, they have to make fewer compromises with their allies. When a prince comes to power through luck or the blessings of powerful figures within the regime, he typically has an easy time gaining power but a hard time keeping it thereafter, because his power is dependent on his benefactor's goodwill. 
he does not command the loyalty of the armies and officials that maintain his authority, and these can be withdrawn from him at a whim. Having risen the easy way, it is not even certain such a prince has the skill and strength to stand on his own feet. Conquests by criminal virtue are ones in which the new prince secures his power through cruel, immoral deeds, such as the execution of political rivals. Machiavelli advises that a prince should carefully calculate all the wicked deeds he needs to do to secure his power, and then execute them all in one stroke, such that he need not commit any more wickedness for the rest of his reign, in this way. His subjects will slowly forget his cruel deeds and his reputation can recover. Princes who fail to do this, who hesitate in their ruthlessness, find that their problems mushroom over time and they are forced to commit wicked deeds throughout their reign. Thus they continuously mar their reputations and alienate their people. There are two types of great people that might be encountered. Those who are bound to the prince. Concerning these it is important to distinguish between two types of obligated great people, those who are rapacious and those who are not. It is the latter who can and should be honored. Those who are not bound to the new prince. Once again these need to be divided into two types, those with a weak spirit, a prince can make use of them if they are of good counsel, and those who shun being bound because of their own ambition, these should be watched and feared as enemies. How to win over people depends on circumstances. Do not get frightened in adversity. One should avoid ruling viaduct magistrates, if one wishes to be able to ascend to absolute rule quickly and safely. One should make sure that the people need the prince, especially if a time of need should come. The way to judge the strength of a princedom is to see whether it can defend itself, or whether it needs to depend on allies. This does not just mean that the cities should be prepared and the people drained, a prince who is hated is also exposed. The two most essential foundations for any state, whether old or new, are sound laws and strong military forces. 20. A self-sufficient prince is one who can meet any enemy on the battlefield. He should be armed with his own arms. However, a prince that relies solely on fortifications or on the help of others and stands on the defensive is not self-sufficient. If he cannot raise a formidable army, but must rely on defense, he must fortify his city. A well-fortified city is unlikely to be attacked, and if it is, most armies cannot endure an extended siege. However, during a siege a virtuous prince will keep the morale of his subjects high while removing all dissenters. Thus, as long as the city is properly defended and has enough supplies, a wise prince can withstand any siege. Mercenaries are useless to a ruler because they are undisciplined, cowardly, and without any loyalty, being motivated only by money. Do not use troops borrowed from an ally, because if they win, the employer is under their favor and if they lose, he is ruined. Auxiliary forces are more dangerous than mercenary forces because they are united and controlled by capable leaders who may turn against the employer. 
the main concern for a prince should be war, or the preparation thereof, not books. Through war a hereditary prince maintains his power or a private citizen rises to power. Machiavelli advises that a prince must frequently hunt in order to keep his body fit and learn the landscape surrounding his kingdom. Through this, he can best learn how to protect his territory and advance upon others. For intellectual strength, he is advised to study great military men so he may imitate their successes and avoid their mistakes. A prince who is diligent in times of peace will be ready in times of adversity. Since there are many possible qualities that a prince can be said to possess, he must not be overly concerned about having all the good ones. Also, a prince may be perceived to be merciful, faithful, humane, frank, and religious, but most important is only to seem to have these qualities. A prince cannot truly have these qualities because at times it is necessary to act against them. In fact, he must sometimes deliberately choose evil. Although a bad reputation should be avoided, it is sometimes necessary to have one. Being overly generous is not economical, because eventually all resources will be exhausted. This results in higher taxes, and will bring grief upon the prince. Then, if he decides to discontinue or limit his generosity, he will be labeled as a miser. Thus, Machiavelli summarizes that guarding against the people's hatred is more important than building up a reputation for generosity. A wise prince should be willing to be more reputed a miser than be hated for trying to be too generous. On the other hand, of what is not yours or your subjects one can be a bigger giver, as were Cyrus, Caesar, and Alexander, because spending what is someone else's does not take reputation from you but adds it to you, only spending your own hurts you. Commitments made in peace are not always kept in adversity. However, commitments made in fear are kept out of fear. Yet, a prince must ensure that he is not feared to the point of hatred, which is very possible. Men worry less about doing an injury to one who makes himself loved than to one who makes himself feared. Fear is simply a means to an end, and that end is security for the prince. The fear and still should never be excessive for that could be dangerous to the prince. A prince should not interfere with the property of their subjects, their women, or the life of somebody without proper justification. Regarding the troops of the prince, fear is absolutely necessary to keep a large garrison united and a prince should not mind the thought of cruelty in that regard. For a prince who leads his own army, it is imperative for him to observe cruelty because that is the only way he can command his soldiers absolute respect. A prince is also praised for the illusion of being reliable in keeping his word. A prince, therefore, should only keep his word when it suits his purposes, but do his utmost to maintain the illusion that he does keep his word and that he is reliable in that regard. Therefore, a prince should not break his word unnecessarily. Most men are content as long as they are not deprived of their property and women. A prince should command respect through his conduct, 
because a prince that is highly respected by his people is unlikely to face internal struggles. Additionally, a prince who does not raise the contempt of the nobles and keeps the people satisfied. Placing fortresses in conquered territories, although it sometimes works, often fails. It is always wiser to choose a side, rather than to be neutral. If your allies win, you benefit whether or not you have more power than they have. If you are more powerful, then your allies are under your command. If your allies are stronger, they will always feel a certain obligation to you for your help. If your side loses, you still have an ally in the loser. It is wise for a prince not to ally with a stronger force unless compelled to do so. In conclusion, the most important virtue is having the wisdom to discern what ventures will come with the most reward and then pursuing them courageously. The selection of good servants is reflected directly upon the prince's intelligence, so if they are loyal, the prince is considered wise, however, when they are otherwise, the prince is open to adverse criticism. The kind that understands things for itself, which is excellent to have. The kind that understands what others can understand, which is good to have. The kind that does not understand for itself, nor through others, which is useless to have. If the prince does not have the first type of intelligence, he should at the very least have the second type. Flatterers were seen as a great danger to a prince, because their flattery could cause him to avoid wise counsel in favor of rash action, but avoiding all advice, flattery or otherwise, was equally bad, a middle road had to be taken. A prudent prince should have a select group of wise counselors to advise him truthfully on matters all the time. All their opinions should be taken into account. Ultimately, the decision should be made by the counselors and carried out absolutely. If a prince is given to changing his mind, his reputation will suffer. A prince must have the wisdom to recognize good advice from bad.